Today on Security Science, the death of containers? Hello, and thank you for joining us. I'm Dan Mellinger, and today we're discussing a hot topic in the world of development. Will Docker's download rate limits kill containers as we know them today? Well, I don't have an answer for you, but my guest today sure has some thoughts. So with me today to discuss is Jerry Gamblin. He's Kenneth Security's head of security, tinker of all things container, and proof that there's an XKCD comic for almost any situation. How's it going, Jerry? Hey, how are you? That That is 100% true. Yep, there's an XKCD for everything at this point. <laughs> and uh, just so you know, the audience knows, we will have Jerry's picked XKCD comic for this episode hosted on the podcast page at kennaresearch.com slash podcast. So go check it out. Jerry's always accompanies his uh, his podcast episodes with XKCD comics, and we always appreciate it. So jumping into the topic today. So Jerry, I know there's a lot of, uh, I guess, kind of strife in the container registry world today uh, brought on by Docker Hub and them basically trying to force people to pay them finally. So yeah. it looks like they want to make some money. Strife. Um, <laughs> <laughs> How dare them stop their their free, you know, eight terabyte, nine terabyte free storage for everybody on the Internet for the last five years. Hey, $7 a user per month is really expensive if you're making thousands or millions of dollars off of the applications you developed on their platform. Correct. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, okay. So we'll get into that. But first, Jerry, what is a container? How are they used in modern development? Um, you know, wh why do people care about this right now? A container is a small repurposable of VMware for most people, right? It, it holds the the files you need to do normally one specific thing. A, a great way to think about it is a standalone website. You can put all the files you need, including the content and you know your web server Nginx into one container, and that can be your test container that you can use in development and staging and in production. So it allows easy reproduction of that container. Nice. And you know what? I like this topic because it kind of picks up off of our third party code dependencies discussion that um, we had a couple weeks ago. And essentially, from the way I understand it, a container just it, Docker Hub and um, well, now AWS, Kubernetes, some of these guys are basically trying to standardize how applications are developed and package up the dependencies into essentially a unit that people can kind of use wherever they want, right? That's the value add? Well, containers are built off of a file called a container file or a Docker file. And it's just the rules on how to build it. Like, go get this file, build it this way, add these add-ins, and then add my content to it. Um, anybody can build those locally. But what uh, Docker Hub does and these other registries that we talk about, it allows the, the creator of the file to bundle those up and to push it up to a centralized location so that the individual user doesn't have to build those files all the time. They can just do a Docker pool Nginx and get a fully function Nginx uh, container. Got it. So they Docker Hub, for example, sets out some standards that you would need to code to. And then once if you adhere to that stuff and you can upload it and then other people can use it, essentially. That's a whole nother issue, right, is is the standards. That's where 
my side project, vulnerablecontainers.org comes in, right? We will link to that as well. That's a fun tool. That there aren't many standards for them. So that's where you're seeing some of this split off from. And actually Docker themselves has kind of recognized this. And they partnered with a company called SNCC to do container scanning for them in their Docker tool now. And, and that's just coming out this year also. Interesting. Well, hey, take a second, plug vulnerablecontainers.org. What does that do? How'd you build it real quick? So vulnerablecontainers.org is a project I launched last year. It pulls the top uh, 10,000 most downloaded containers off of the Docker registry hub and then scans them for vulnerabilities to show how often people are using popular containers with known vulnerabilities and it's sometimes hundreds or thousands of vulnerabilities inside the container because there aren't rules or there wasn't rules before on how to, you know, stop these containers with vulnerabilities from being on these registries. And and there's really still not. And and that's a lot of what scares people about the the registries kind of splitting and everybody building their own. Mm, okay. Well, I we'll get into some of the security implications and all that good stuff. But um, for anyone who wants to go check that out, it's a pretty cool resource. And so we'll host that on the podcast resource page as well. Just getting back to a little fundamental understanding of containers, because I have almost zero, right? Uh, what are the benefits of using a container today? Like, why are they so popular? Because they're they're reproducible. They're the same. So if I build a container and it works on my machine... I can almost 100% guarantee you if you build this exact same container, it's going to run exactly the same. Uh, there's an old joke in development. It works on my laptop. Yeah. like, and, and containers kind of break that cycle because it's not dependent on the machine that it's running on. It's dependent on what's inside the container to do the operations. So I know that if I build it on my machine and it works, I can send it to anybody in the world and it and it will work as as designed. Keno's security actually uses containers internally on an open source project we call have called the toolkit, mm-hmm. which allows users to upload data to our platform through our open KDI initiative. And and I kind of manage the the containers for that. And it's a really handy kind of side project, open source project that Kenna does that that people love. Interesting. So Applications that are developed, they don't necessarily always run 100% on every environment that you have them on. And that's a challenge, right? So um, what that brought to mind for me was I know Adobe's done this big push to try to make uh, their creative suite, you know, cloud enabled and all that good stuff and make it like iPad Pro accessible and all that. And I remember an interview and they're like, yeah, if we were to try to build Photoshop from scratch right now, we couldn't do it. Right. We don't know how it was built. It's it's been going on for generations. Right. At this point, we've been building on top of this one highly complex application and things wouldn't work the same way. We just couldn't reproduce this kind of um, software if we wanted to today. Right. In the same way. And that's kind of what containers can solve. What you described as as uh, paint shopper is that would be what's considered a monolith in a development terms, it's just one giant thing. What containers allow you to do and what Kubernetes allows you to do is to break that down into a hundred manageable pieces that can be brought in and out at a different time set to build that one application. And yeah, that, that's kind of the way it's going. Microservices and containers normally go hand in hand. 
Got it. So that's that's the appeal for modern developers, right? And why containers in general have started to uh, become so popular in the development. Well, just like Docker wants to make money, uh, containers help companies with this too, right? Because they're since it's the exact same image that comes up every time, building them to scale is super easy. Can't say the bank's name, but there are banks I know that sometimes get down to running three web servers, you know, from midnight to 3 a.m., Monday through Friday, because nobody's checking their bank balance there. But Friday afternoon, when everybody is going to make sure their paycheck was deposited or whatever, yep. containers allow them to instantly scale up to, you know, a thousand web servers, 1500 web servers. And as that goes down over the night, it, they can bring that down and save the company money. So instead of having to have 1500 servers available all the time for that peak, you know, two or three hours on Friday when everybody's logging in to pay their bills. Yeah. They can just pay for that, that usage as they need it. And then it can come down overnight. Interesting. So kind of modular and flexible and it allows them to basically scale to need. And I never thought about that. Yeah. You would need to keep all those server resources for like the 15th when everyone gets paid and is like transferring money around. So, okay, that's interesting. Um, I know this issue is kind of centering around Docker, right? Um, could you do a quick overview of the landscape? Like why, what is Docker? Why is Docker important in this conversation? And what are some of the other alternatives, I guess, just so audience has that background? So Docker started out as an open source project that turned into a VC funded company. And that was probably, you know, seven or eight years ago. And they tried to make a, a decent run out of it. And, you know, it didn't grow the way I'm, I think that they expected it to grow and they were acquired by a company and the company decided to, hey, let's change the model a little bit. So they're starting to do some things with the source code to make it more uh, profitable for them. But the other big part is the Docker registry was just the default registry all the time. So if you were on, if you had a Docker client installed in your machine and you did a Docker pool you want to, it was it's programmed by default to go to hub.docker.com and pull down the image from there. And they probably brought in an accountant or whatever who was looking at, at their output and said, hey, we're spending a ton of money on Docker Hub and, you know, we just can't keep giving this away. Uh, I looked and they said they had nine petabytes of data and, you know, their hosting bill every month was outrageous. So. They're doing what business does and said, hey, we got to do a chargeback here and, and try to make some money. So like you said, they're starting to charge between seven and five dollars a developer per month, which is reasonable for for the usage. But it breaks a lot of people's workflows because they're saying, hey, if you have one IP and you're not paying us, you're not signed in. We're going to limit you to 100 downloads a day, mm -hmm. which you know, if I'm at my house just doing some basic dev, I'm likely to not hit 100 you know, pools a day. But if I'm running my workload in the, in the cloud and I'm pooling from there and, and, you know, doing that thing where I, where I size up to 1500 servers on a Friday, yep. I'm going to do a lot of pools on Friday and I'm going to, going to break it. Right. So that's what led these companies like GitHub who built their whole new GitHub actions around pooling containers from Docker Hub and Amazon, who has their, you know, their elastic container services that defaults to Docker Hub to start saying, oh, no, this is going to break where we're at. So we got to figure out what to do. 
and I don't know what the background business was or whatever. So instead of like partnering with Docker Hub, if possible, to like get around those limits or pay them, they're doing what everybody on the internet does when something doesn't go their way. They're taking their ball and they're they're going home and they're going to build their own. So you know, in the last couple of weeks, both Amazon and and GitHub have announced that they're going to build their own registries, and, and that goes you know along with some of the other popular registries out there. Uh, Red Hat has Quay. And there are a few more. So you're getting to the point where there, you know, there are four or five super popular container registries on the Internet. And that just leads to a lot of problems. Interesting. So these registries are basically just holding and providing a reference point, right, for users to use and download this code. For anybody who's been on the Internet for a long time, it's the download.com of 2020. Gotcha. And how did Docker become so popular that now, you know, they turn on some <laughs> some paywalls essentially, right, for uh, usage, and now everyone's scrambling to create their own. What what drove Docker in a position where they were so widely used overall? Well, they wrote the software, right? Like yeah. Docker, <laughs> and then they did, they came up with the registry. So it's just been the default. So since day one. The default Docker registry has been hub.docker.com. Gotcha. And they've basically been free up until this point? Yep. 100% free, no limits. I mean, they've had some limits on, like, you if you wanted private registries or if you wanted, or they tried to do, like, hey, if you want to do vulnerability scanning on your images, it costs 10 bucks a month, right? Some add-ons like that. But just base public images and downloads and pools have always been free on Docker Hub until November 1st. Interesting. Okay. And so they were trying to monetize, it looks like, through some added services, stuff like that. Ultimately, they're like, hey, <laughs> it's costing us a lot of money to store and host all this stuff that you guys are pulling constantly. Um, we're going to start charging, I think, what? It's still free, if you like you said, if you did under 100 pulls a day. The next tier up is Pro, I believe which is $7 a month. And then they have a Teams option where if you like work at a company and you have five developers, you can all, it, it goes to five bucks a month per per dev. Gotcha. So between five and $7 for basically anything that receives any sort of volume that would indicate it's being commercially used. Yeah, correct. Yeah, yep. Okay, that makes sense. And now you're saying... Um, GitHub and AWS are going like, okay, we're just going to take this and create our own <laughs> so people could just use it. We don't like that people are building applications on AWS and they have to refer to Docker. Now these people might not do that because they don't want to be charged. So we have enough money. We're AWS, right? We're Amazon. We're going to build our own and not have limits on it right now. That's what they're saying. We can't figure this out. We don't want to get around it. And yeah, and you know, you'd hope they had some kind of business discussions, but nobody's privy to those. So it's, hey, we're going to build our own container registries. Well, that sounds fun. So typically you want to think the internet, more choice, good thing. What are some of the implications of, uh, you know, 
GitHub and Amazon building their own alternatives, especially this late in the game, it seems like. It's going to be uh, what we like to call copycat, or, or not our name squatting issues that are going to come along the security side. Hmm. Pick a medium-sized kind of open source project that's fairly popular, like a FluentD, which is a logging platform. It really doesn't matter. But if, if they're not on top of their game and go and, and get their name on, you know, this new Amazon registry, the new GitHub registry and the Docker Hub registry, and somebody else comes in and squats on that, they could easily upload something that looks exactly like the legitimate image, but just slide in some malware, right? And get that distributed. Or, you know, just the other way, you have all of these registries and you have to try to keep them all up to date and you miss something and then people are using vulnerable software, right? Uh, choice is good until somebody has to actually manage all the choice and figure out a way to to keep it all secure. Makes sense. So that's interesting. So kind of like the early dot-com days where people were just buying every URL, <laughs> every domain name that they thought could be popular and then... Yeah, or, or the other way, when a new TLD comes out, right? Like you have dot-com, but... You know, at my last role, dot sucks come out came out, and you know everybody wanted to make sure that we owned that so that nobody could could buy it. So you know there was a big scramble to to spend the ten thousand dollars for that domain name or whatever, right? Like it's that trying to keep up. So if somebody goes somewhere or they're you know expecting your software to be, and they pull it, they're actually getting your software and not getting competitors or somebody who's you know has something nefarious in mind. Yeah, and, and the to be clear, I think the main challenge you stated as well was, right, there's a lot of existing open source projects that are on Docker Hub today, right? And so their people know what they are, the reference, they use them in their code. Maybe they have an AWS backend or they develop on AWS. They hear AWS isn't going to charge them, but someone else can come in and do AWS dot popular open source project dot com and not be that because these are being created now into a market that's relatively right defined. People are looking for specific things from Docker. They're going to try to find it in AWS. So it gives an opportunity for someone to go make some a copycat, a lookalike that is more nefarious or nefarious, nefarious, nefarious. Yeah, yeah, nefarious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> on uh, GitHub's or AWS's. Uh, registries that's what you're talking about yep 100 percent. that's kind of the the long and the short of it is is that's kind of what we're worried about and and just to make sure that it that it continues to to kind of keep security in mind and and you know making sure that these new registries are are thinking about security at the forefront as they bring them up right like we always want to see i'm primed for a good registry like security tools race but I don't know if that's going to be what's going to happen, right? Like, I, I don't think any of these three companies are particularly security first minded. So I'm, I'm worried that that these registries are going to launch with, you know, an MVP type of security project, a minimum viable, you know, product, not a, you know, most valuable. But yeah, <laughs> sorry, that, that was some product yeah. talk sliding in there. Yeah. So MVP means minimal viable product. So like the bare minimum that you could launch something and have people not completely pissed off that it's a product that exists in the world, basically. So you're saying you could see a situation where GitHub and AWS are launching security 
pro services, I guess in this case, right? Um, yeah. For these container registries that are not really fully baked. Yeah. I'm guessing that if you were in, you know, roadmap planning for these companies in January, launching their own registry service wasn't on anybody's list. And it's kind of happened over the last year as, you know, this has kind of shook out a little bit. That strikes me as odd overall as well. You'd think, um, you know, companies like Amazon and GitHub would recognize that kind of dependence and be like, hey, you know, we might want to come up with some kind of exit strategy should, you know, this happen, a situation like this happen, right? Being very reliant on basically one key player is not typically a good strategy overall. So I'm actually surprised that uh, it seems like they're all scrambling to uh, – to create a new service, new registries, new product, um, and you know, as a result of this news, yeah, single points of failures are normally not obvious until they're like really obvious, and I think that that was one of the the cases here, right? Like, yeah, I guess that's a good point. Hindsight, yeah. <laughs> um, so, what are some best practices for people who um, you know might consider migrating to you know from Docker to AWS to a GitHub? Um, you know, to one, avoid some of these security issues. Just make sure you know where your containers are coming from and and be super vigilant about that over the next year. Make sure that your devs know about it. Have a good testing program. Don't just uh, buy what these companies say, like, oh, we ran a security check and it's safe. Build those checks yourself into your CI CD platform and before you put something in the production would be my, you know, would be my last word on this was just to, to make sure you have your own visibility, make sure you understand how you're building your stack, because at the end of the day, you're responsible for it. Well, it'd be terrible if you pulled a nefarious container from somewhere that had malware in it. At the end of the day, it's probably not going to fall on the, the registry, you know, as their fault. It's going to be your fault for pulling it and loading it. So what are some ways to scan and or determine how vulnerable, you know, even you know, popular or maintained containers. How do how do you judge the security uh, of said things? Because I know you build, you know, uh, vulnerable containers, right? As a one of the responses to this as an open toolkit. But Aqua Security has a has a tool, an open source tool called Trivi that I absolutely love. Um, there are plenty of commercial tools out there, and at Kenna we use. You know, we we started to support more and more of those. So I'm not, you know, I don't spend a lot of time in the commercial tools, but just anything that will give you visibility into it. But, you know, there is Docker Toolbench, which is open source and free and, and Trivi, which are the two that I always point people towards looking at when, when they ask me what kind of tooling should I start with. Awesome. That's good to know. And then um, if you were to identify vulnerabilities and containers what what are some of the uh ways you can alleviate that you still want to use the container you know it has a couple vulnerabilities you're not comfortable with um what do you do if you still want to use it you you can normally patch those in your end container or remove the services or a lot of times sometimes it's just as simple as going back to the people who maintain the upstream container and just letting them know you know opening a bug or saying like hey can you patch this uh to be honest i just did the same thing with github they have a bug in their latest super linter and it's stopping a deployment for me so i opened up an issue and their people said hey we're fixing that right so it's really just knowing where your software comes from knowing how to get support and knowing how to talk to the people who kind of manage that software and those containers 
Yeah, that's interesting. I never realized uh, how heavy this kind of like interpersonal slash community element was in application and software development overall, right? You brought that up in uh, the third party risk episode, right? Some guy in Nebraska, right? Maintaining the code and hit him up and be like, hey, would you mind patching this? Because uh, we'd like to use it. Exactly. That, it, it really, really works that way in open source quite a bit. And a lot of times, if you can, you can go in and patch it yourself, right? Like if the container's on GitHub and I know what's wrong, I'll go in and I'll open a pull request and they'll accept it. And then I fix the issue not only for myself, but for everybody else who uses that software. Awesome. I think this was super helpful. A nice quick overview on containers in general and kind of the security implications of Docker, you know. God, God forbid, charging money for <laughs> their services. But um, just, you know, as we finalize things, uh, where do you th see things heading right now? Do you see Amazon and uh, GitHub, for example, being successful in this? Do you see this kind of fragmentation or do you think, you know, things will? Yeah, that's kind of a whole nother episode, to be honest. Um, <laughs> so while Docker is still the leading container software on the Internet, uh, the Linux Foundation has uh, started a project called Podman, which is a open source version of an open source software, and and it started to ship by default on on some Red Hat instances. So Docker might go the way of Kleenex, right? Like everybody says Kleenex, but yeah. it's not the Kleenex brand all the way all the it's time. Tissue Our, paper, yeah. yeah. So I think that, you know, we're kind of at a, at a tipping point on which way this could go, right? Docker is still the most popular open source container software, but there's nothing to say that, that that's going to be this, you know, be the same in six months or a year if we came back and visited this. Awesome. Well, it looks like uh, we got another topic we can uh, talk about coming up. But thanks, Jerry. Uh, any final words before we hop off? Nope, nope. Just be safe and, and scan your containers. Scan your containers. Awesome. Well, thanks, Jerry. Um, just for everyone listening, I will link to all the resources Jerry mentioned. So, um, you know, nice plug for Aqua Security, uh, Docker Toolbench. I'll link to the Podman and, of course, the XKCD comic. So thanks, everyone. Have a nice day. Mm -hmm.